Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. As promised on last week's show, we're going to be speaking with the director of Who Killed the Electric Car? That would be Mr. Chris Payne will be talking to us in segment two today. You may have seen Chris Payne's appearance with John Stewart last week. We actually beat the Daily Show to uh, to Chris Payne, but uh, decided to put off the interview till this week because it is opening locally tomorrow. We think that a lot of you are going to want to rush out and see the film after hearing our interview in segment two. Quite a few interesting things have taken place uh, since our last program. On uh, the domestic front, the defeat of Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman in Connecticut's primary uh, appears to be reverberating around the nation. As late as February, polls showed that Lieberman held a 68 to 13 percent advantage over Mr. Ned Lamont. It's been said that bloggers played a major role in the defeat of uh, Joe Lieberman, would like to quote from a blog uh, from The Coffee House by Todd Gitlin, who noted as follows, uh, Ned Lamont ran a campaign accusing Lieberman of not really being a Democrat, whereupon Lieberman announced if he lost his party's primary, he would run as an independent. Gitlin notes, obviously Lamont won his point. Apparently, Joe Lieberman is going to try and run now as an, quote, independent Democrat, unquote. Well, you can't be an independent Democrat. The parties do get to choose through their usual corrupt machinations uh, who's going to be the, uh, the, the anointed one to run for the seat. So, you know, either he's an independent or he's not. Let us commence the show as we like to do with on this date in history. On this date in history, which is August 10th in 1498, King Henry VII of England rewards John Cabot for the discovery of Canada. (laughs) Discovery of Canada was rewarded by the princely sum of 10 pounds. This would be about $16 in the current exchange rate. Of course, uh, back then, 10 pounds bought a heck of a lot more than it does now. On this date in 1628, the vast Swedish warship Vasa, the epitome of what was then the Swedish military-industrial complex, sunk at the start of its maiden voyage. Apparently they loaded too many cannons high on the ship, it was too top-heavy, and it tipped over in the harbor and promptly went to the bottom. The ship, with a 164-foot mast, remained on the seabed until 1960, when it was raised and it was, ironically, so well-preserved that it floated. And on August 10, 1904, during the Russo-Japanese War, the Russian fleet took heavy losses when the Japanese blocked their escape from Port Arthur in the Battle of the Yellow Sea. Our quotes of the day, and I think our email of the day, come from Nancy. The premise of the email was, uh, Things you have to believe 
to be a Republican in 2006. So Lieberman, take note. All right, to be a Republican currently, you have to believe that trade with Cuba is wrong because the country is communist, whereas trade with China and Vietnam are vital to the spirit of international harmony. A Republican in 2006 believes a woman can't be trusted with decisions about her own body, but multinational corporations can make decisions affecting all of mankind without regulation. You should believe that the United States should just get out of the United Nations, and our highest national priority is enforcing UN resolutions about Iraq. It appears in 2006 a Republican needs to believe that global warming and tobacco's link to cancer are junk science, but creationism should be taught in schools. You should believe that being a drug addict is a moral failing and a crime. Unless you're a conservative radio host, then it's an illness and you need our prayers for your recovery. And finally, to be a Republican in 2006, you apparently have to believe that government should limit itself to the powers named in the Constitution, which include banning gay marriages and censoring the Internet. It's the Barnum and Bailey world, just as phony as it can be. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me. All right, remember how uh, a couple of months back Greg Pallast talked about how... Um, Various uh, elements of infrastructure in the U.S. have to be uh, designated as, uh, you know, key resources so that you can get funds, uh, supposedly in the war on terror. Uh, in Greg's case, it was apparently the local ferry that ran people out to the Indian casino that was being designated as the key structure vulnerable to terrorist attack. As follow-up, we would note, as reported in USA Today, that the Department of Homeland Security's database of critical infrastructure and key resources deemed vulnerable to terrorist attacks has been winnowed down to a mere 77,069 entries. After a flurry of embarrassing news stories, federal officials removed such assets as a popcorn factory in Indiana, a petting zoo in Alabama, and a kangaroo conservation center in Georgia. So evidently, uh, Greg was right, and uh, you know, may maybe maybe considering uh, a group like that, that ferry to the Indian casino uh, might have been critical. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the magazine, last week was a good week for X-Files fans after astronaut Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon, told an interviewer for a British documentary that he and his crewmates saw a UFO during the Apollo 11 mission, but that NASA bosses covered it up. There was something out there, said Aldrin. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for conspiracy theorists after an autopsy revealed that convicted former Enron CEO Ken Lay really did die of a heart attack. There had been speculation that Lay had either committed suicide or, more likely, faked his own death. 
Radio Parallax's representatives were pitched this idea at a recent wine party. Uh, we tended to uh, tended to discount this one. Although we have no way of checking whether the fingerprints, uh, you know, from the autopsy body really did match that of Kenny Boylet. We would acknowledge that he probably did make enough dough from his raping of uh, California during the energy crisis to, to fake his own death. But, uh, eh, probably not. And finally, according to The Week magazine, last week was an, an ugly week for finding new ways to meet girls after a student at the University of Central Florida was charged with setting fire to his dorm in order, he later told police, to meet female students as the building was being evacuated. All right, special bonus item in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and I guess this is pretty ugly. But I think this will explain a lot of the junk emails that uh, you and I uh, constantly receive. It was revealed that Rainier Bomi of Dresden Technical University and Thorsten Holtz of the University of Mannheim, both in Germany, tracked the value of these penny stocks that are promoted in spam emails and found that on the average they became twice as popular and increased in value by about 2% in the days after being advertised in bulk emails. What happens, of course, is the spammers buy these stocks at low prices, promote them in these emails to raise the price before selling them off. The trick appears to work. Said Rainer Baume about his study, it's interesting that people base financial decisions on non-credible sources. But I like the comment by Bruce Schneider, security expert based in Mountain View, California, about the study who said, well, if the researchers are right, it means that criminals have a valid business model. All right, that's it for the good, the bad, and the ugly. As regards uh, last week's program, which we devoted almost completely to the issue of what's going on in the Middle East, uh, we received the following email from Ben. Enjoyed your show on KDVS yesterday. It's great to hear the truth about the Middle East amongst the biased and incorrect standard media diet. I hope that you get a f I hope that you get a few other compliments amongst the flack. In response, uh, AJ sent us an op-ed piece from the New York Times relative to the subject matter, which dealt with a surprising study done of uh, suicide bombers in the Middle East. The author Robert Pape did a study of suicide bombers, uh, of 41 that they um, examined. Shockingly, only eight were Islamic fundamentalists. 27 were from leftist political groups, such as the Lebanese Communist Party and Arab Socialist Union. Three were Christians, including a female high school teacher with a college degree. All were born in Lebanon. should clarify, this was a study of, of uh, bombers in Lebanon. But the author noted that what these suicide attackers and their heirs today shared was not a religious or political ideology, but simply a commitment to resisting a foreign occupation. Two decades of Israeli military presence did not rule out Hezbollah. The only thing that has proven to end the suicide attacks, per the author, is withdrawing by the occupying force. To our somewhat shocked surprise, we actually received no flack for our broadcast last week. I hope, <laughs> I hope it's not because nobody's listening. 
We would like to refer you, um, dear listener, to an article titled The War Over Israel's Influence by John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt. You can find this either, either through Keep Media or through Foreign Policy, or I imagine you can just Google The War Over Israel's Influence. I'd like to quote from, from this article. America's relationship with Israel is difficult to discuss openly in the United States. In March, we published an article in the London Review of Books titled The Israel Lobby, based on a working paper which we posted on the faculty website at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Our goal was to break the taboo and to generate a candid discussion of U.S. support for Israel, because it has far-reaching consequences for Americans and others around the world. What followed was a barrage of responses, some constructive, some not. The authors noted, every year the United States gives Israel a level of support that far exceeds what it provides to other states. Although Israel is now an industrial power with a per capita GDP roughly equal to Spain or South Korea's, it still receives about $3 billion in U.S. aid per year. Israel also gets a variety of other special deals and consistent diplomatic support. We believe that this generosity cannot be fully explained by either strategic or moral grounds. Skipping ahead, the moral rationale for unconditional U.S. support is undermined by Israel's treatment of the Palestinians and its unwillingness to offer them a viable state. We believe there is a strong moral case for Israel's existence, but that existence is not at risk. Palestinian extremists and Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad may dream of wiping Israel off the map, but fortunately neither has the ability to make that dream a reality. The authors go on to discuss the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, IPAC, which is considered to be the most effective lobbying group in our nation's capital. Reading on, the special relationship with Israel, we argue, is due largely to the activities of the Israel Lobby, a loose coalition of individuals and organizations who openly work to push U.S. foreign policy in a pro-Israel direction. The lobby is not synonymous with Jewish Americans because many of them do not support its positions, and some groups that work in Israel's behalf, Christian evangelicals, for example, are not Jewish. The lobby has no central leadership. It is not a cabal or a conspiracy. These organizations are simply engaged in interest group politics. Skipping ahead. We also traced the lobby's impact on recent U.S. policies, including the March 2003 invasion of Iraq. Neoconservatives inside and outside the Bush administration, as well as leaders of a number of prominent pro-Israel organizations, played key roles in making the case for war. We believe the United States would not have attacked Iraq without their efforts. That said, these groups and individuals do not operate in a vacuum, and they did not lead the country to war by themselves. The war probably would not have occurred without the September 11th terrorist attacks, which helped convince George Bush and Vice President Cheney to support it. With Saddam Hussein removed from power, the Israel lobby is now focusing on Iran, whose government seems determined to acquire nuclear weapons. Despite its own nuclear arsenal and conventional military might, Israel does what not want a nuclear Iran. Few world leaders favor using force to deal with this problem, except in Israel and the United States. IPAC and many of the same neoconservatives who advocated attacking Iraq are now among the chief proponents of using military force against Iran. 
Writing in support of Mearsheimer and Walt was Zbigniew Brzezinski, President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, who note that the authors are outspoken regarding Israel's prolonged mistreatment of the Palestinians. They are, in brief, generally critical of Israel's policy and thus could be labeled as being, in some respects, anti-Israel. But an anti-Israel bias is not the same as anti-Semitism. To argue as much is to claim an altogether unique immunity for Israel, untouchable by the kind of criticism that is normally directed at the conduct of states. Anyone who recalls World War II knows that anti-Semitism is the unbridled and irrational hatred of Jews. The case made by Mearsheimer and Walt did not warrant the hysterical charges of anti-Semitism leveled at them by several academics in self-demeaning attacks published in leading U.S. newspapers. We should note for the record that no one has accused us of being anti-Semitic in the stance we took on last week's program and will continue to take in programs in the future. Because we're not a commercial station and are affiliated with the University of California, we've gone out of our way and past programs to examine some of the injustices which have been inflicted upon the Jewish people in the past. We have, I would contend somewhat uniquely for talk radio, devoted uh, uh, entire segments in the past to the issue of what happened in the 1890s to in the Dreyfus Affair in France. We also devoted an entire segment to the, is, to the issue of one of the great frauds of history, the alleged uh, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a rather absurd anti-Semitic hoax that unfortunately has never seemed to have gone away. Let's do one or two more items before taking a break here. This one caught my eye from Reuters. Uh, <laughs> it's alleged that one in 10 children below the age of 15 in Britain has a mental health problem. And the prevalence of mental disorders is on the increase, said doctors. We noted this was rather broadly defined as problems which could range from sleep disorders, temper tantrums and eating disorders, to behavior problems or depressive and obsessive disorders. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, the British Medical Association thinks if you have trouble sleeping, you apparently are mentally ill. Speaking of sleep, we'd like to cite a study done at Harvard that uh, noted that if you want to ace the final exam, you maybe you don't want to pull an all-nighter. Researchers at Harvard found that the brain needs several hours of sleep to solidify the information it's learned during the day. They did a study on the recall of words, where, the, where 60 students memorized 20 pairs of random words. Half were told to return 12 hours later after a good night's sleep. The other half were told not to sleep at all. In the sleeping group, 76% correctly recalled the words on the test, while only 32% of the sleepless students got them right. When you sleep, researcher Jeffrey Ellen Borgen told Scientific American, your brain orchestrates the strengthening of memories and thereby renders them less vulnerable to interference. Up till very recently, medical residencies all across this nation uh, <laughs> seem to be based on the premise that, you know, the human brain just doesn't need sleep. Thankfully, that's now being fixed. And uh, our last item of the segment, New Scientist magazine noted that if you ever thought you were stupid to sleep with someone, consider this. Sharing your bed could actually make you stupid if you're a man, well, at least temporarily. 
Even without having sex, bed sharing disturbs sleep quality, says Gerhard Klosch and colleagues from the University of Vienna. Curiously, while men thought they slept better with a partner, women tended to believe they didn't. Turned out actually both sexes had more disturbed sleep even when they didn't have sex. But when researchers examined stress levels and mental scores, it turned out the men performed poorly. One solution to all of this that Radio Parallax suggests is having two sets of sheets. If you're not fighting over how you're going to wrap the sheets around each other, you may find that you just get a little bit better rest. That's just, that's just our suggestion. This is not based upon any extensive studies at sleep centers. This would have to come under the heading of anecdotal evidence. I'm so tired, I haven't slept a wink. is on the blink I wonder should I get up and fix myself a drink Alright, John Stewart may have aired his interview with uh, Chris Payne before we are doing so, but uh, I think we're going to let him go a little bit longer, so let us come back and talk about who killed the electric car in segment two You're listening to Radio Parallax I'm Douglas Everett, this is KDVS 90.3 FM Davis, Sacramento So upset 